Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. All right, here we are. Welcome to the Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. We have some really important stuff to cover today. And by really important, I mean I'm likely to move you out of the comfort zone with some of the things that I'm going to be bringing up. So I thought I would give you that warning. Just, you know, I I want to be fair. I want to give you plenty of time if you need to, uh, you know, uh, switch to something else. Turn me off. I mean, just don't say that I didn't warn you. But, man, we we are approaching a breaking point. Or at least it feels like we're approaching a breaking point. And, and I wish that there were, there were an easier way to, to describe this. I'm going to share with you a little, uh, this is a, a write-up I found yesterday. Uh, Tom Cranowitter is the author of this. And I think he sums up very, very nicely this uh, growing mood that is developing in America. And, and in a nutshell, what he's talking about here is we are starting to, to lose the fear or at least the, the panic that originally had everybody hunkered down and just, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop is starting to give way to a reality that these these lockdowns, the economic shutdown, the the ripple in the supply chain. You know, for instance, there are some essential businesses, uh, food businesses and so forth that are finding, hey, we're having trouble doing our jobs because we can't ship items. Why? Well, because uh, the companies that make the uh, containers that we ship in are now shut down. They were considered non-essential. And you start to find out there really is no such thing as a non-essential job. But people are starting to, to get the sense that, hey, this is taking us a very dark place beside the fact that we're feeling that gigantic government thumb right on top of our heads and wondering how long is this, gonna, is this going to be with us and what can we expect on the other side of this crisis? Is this going to be how we're expected to live our lives? Someone says, now you will shelter in place or else, you know, for the rest of our days. Let's hope not. Tom Cranowitter says, whether due to the sheer necessities of life or from going stir crazy or maybe both. Americans are going to start coming out of their homes in increasing numbers. And he says it's going to happen, no matter what politicians say about it. Just watch. Life will not be stopped by mere executive orders and bureaucratic edicts. Now, he has a message for those who are in power. He says, you who occupy the ranks of government offices would be wise to think long and hard about how you will respond The United States is large in acres and numerous in population. You, the chattering political class, produce nothing. And you, the chattering political class, have neither the jail cells to hold entire populations nor the police power to arrest them all. You are on thin ice. And he says, and you who are in law enforcement, especially elected county sheriffs who are dependent upon no governor, no legislature, and no other elected officials at any level of government, would be wise to reflect on how far executive orders and bureaucratic edicts stray from what you know to be morally right and the proper purpose of government. He says, you and law enforcement have a choice. Execute draconian orders and edicts or... Protect the natural freedom and private property of fellow citizens. You and law enforcement can be agents for justice or agents for power-hungry politicians. And he says, know this, saying afterward, I was simply following orders, is not an excuse. And it will not be accepted by your fellow citizens as an excuse for your contributions to injustice. 
He says all citizens, those in and out of government office, should remember during this critical moment, no one is forcing anyone who is sick or compromised in their health to leave their homes. No one. Each American is free to protect his own health as best he can, including self-isolation. But many Americans, millions of others, are being prevented by government force from the work that human life requires. And he says, as Americans become more desperate, they become more likely to resist that force. And desperation is the matter of which revolutions are made. Again, this is uh, the, these are the words of Tom Cranawitter. I actually shared this on Facebook yesterday. Uh, maybe I'll have a link. I'll go ahead and post a link with this in the show notes, and you can read it for yourself and share it if you like. Now, some people might think what he's saying is a terribly radical and inflammatory thing. How dare you talk to the people in authority like this? I look at it a little bit different, and, and I understand. Maybe I'm, I'm marching to a totally different drumbeat here, but I think he is giving them the fairest possible warning, and a timely one at that. The situation that we're in right now is not tenable. It can't last like this forever. And you're starting to see little pockets of resistance breaking out all over the place. Now, I'm going to specifically address a couple of them that I'm aware of uh, in my home state of Utah. I know there is a walk taking place on Saturday in the St. George area that will be uh, that is encouraging people to get out and not be irresponsible Not, you know, get together and French kiss or, you know, do anything that would otherwise, you know, make them more susceptible to to contracting an illness. But get out there and walk, show their support for businesses that are still open and essentially show that we are ready to get on with our lives in spite of whatever, you know, the health official bureaucrat says or, or, you know, whatever order may have come down from either the, you know, municipal, state or even federal level. In Salt Lake City. There's also a rally that will be taking place, and this was something headed up by my friend Eric Mutsos, and I'm just going to share with you from the press release what he's saying here. It's a safe distancing rally, and I know some people are a little bit, ah, why are you doing the safe distancing thing if you're trying to prove a point? Look, I think Eric is approaching this the right way with respect and with uh, asking people, let's be responsible, but let's assert our rights. The safe distancing rally, which will include elected officials, former police officers, um, will be taking place Saturday at 5 p.m. in Salt Lake City. It's, it's also under the, the name uh, the Utah Business Revival, which I, I think is a, is a marvelous name because that's really what this is about. This is not about let's be noisy and go out and protest and, you know, demand our rights. It's about let's get back on with life and let's support these businesses that are dying on the vine right now. And let's remind government, you exist to serve us. Not to rule us and to micromanage every aspect of our lives. From the press release. The event will take place Saturday, April 18th, 5 p.m. Details as to where the event will be held will be announced at approximately 4.30. Now, maybe you can understand why they're doing this. Announcing it just a short time before the actual event. That is to prevent uh, certain individuals, Mayor Mendenhall, we're looking your direction from mounting some kind of uh, forceful response, which it sounds like she is promising to do. And this will be on the Utah Business Revival Facebook page. I'll have a link to that as well in in, uh, the show notes. Eric Mutso said, we are asking for Mayor Mendenhall to immediately discontinue the constitutionally defective snitch on your neighbor hotline 
and to task the good men and women of Salt Lake City's law enforcement agency to return to protecting and serving without trampling the rights of members of this community. He said any time the government oversteps its bounds in promising security at the expense of personal freedom, a little bit of America dies. These deaths, whether it be suicide by business owners faced with daunting financial realities spurred by this pandemic or the erosion of freedom itself, the net effect is devastating. And Eric said, we are adults. We are citizens of a free nation. We demand that our leaders cease ignoring our constitutionally protected rights under the guise of keeping us safe. The policies enacted here do not keep us safe. They seek to reorder society and destroy our economy at the expense of hundreds of millions of citizens who will never even get sick. Now, as of this time, there are at least 3,000 members of this Utah Business Revival Facebook page group. And it's growing daily. And that group purports to be working directly and indirectly with uh, city mayors throughout the state to allow small businesses in the city to come and set up booths for free and for hundreds of people to come together safely to help revive the city. The city leaders who do wish to help will be encouraging citizens to purchase food from establishments within the city limits and to have a picnic in the park. And again, with proper social distancing guidelines, as you would expect during a time of pandemic. He says it's expected that officials from throughout Utah at all levels of government, including both active and former law enforcement officers, will be in attendance, standing alongside their neighbors in this important display of community support. And just a couple of clarifications. He says, please watch the Facebook announcement for further instruction. And remember, this is a nonviolent rally. So nobody's showing up ready to rumble in the streets for their rights. All attendees are asked to stay not just six feet, but seven feet apart and encouraged to wear appropriate protective gear such as masks or gloves in order to stay safe while supporting these struggling businesses. Now, that seems very reasonable to me. But then again, I, you know, maybe I'm a terribly unreasonable person. So what's reasonable to me would seem unreasonable to other people. But I have a hard time seeing how someone could take exception to this unless they are in the deepest, deepest grip of fear that but but somebody might get sick. And you know what? They're right. Somebody might. But that's a risk that we uh, face in virtually everything we do in life. We'll talk more about that. Just the other side of these messages. And we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thanks again for joining us and being a part of this broadcast and podcast. Thank you especially to those who share this with their friends. Let other people know. You can download the Loving Liberty app for your smartphone, either iOS or Android. It's free of charge. It gives you the ability to follow us 24-7. We're streaming live content 24-7. We also have a marvelous, unparalleled, well, almost unparalleled, uh, podcast archive from every single host on the network. And I would encourage you, check it out. So I've spent some time sharing with you the uh, uh, upcoming safe distancing rally to uh, to breathe some life back into businesses here in my home state of Utah. The Utah Business Revival slated for this coming Saturday, April 18th at 5 p.m. 
And I'm going to open up the phone lines in the next hour to, to get some thoughts from you on on uh, what you think. Is, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? But I want you to I'm asking you to please consider where we find ourselves right now. I mean, here we are. We are a month into a national emergency and we have crucial decisions to make. And the decisions that are being made for us call into question the the proper limits and scope of of what authority legitimate government can rightly exercise. Now, if a state of emergency is all it takes to simply erase our natural rights or at least render them null and void, can we honestly say that we, we ever expect our rights to be secure? I'm thinking of a quote from Patrick Henry. He said, should I keep back my opinions at such a time through fear of giving offense? I should consider myself as guilty of treason toward my country and an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. You get what he's saying? There may be people who will strenuously disagree. There may be people who say, wait until the crisis is over before you say something. Do not, you know, broach this subject when people are afraid or when people are dying. And yet it's exactly that time when people need to speak up. Especially when people are tempted to do rash things out of fear or out of panic. That's when someone's got to be willing to risk, you know, pointing out the elephant in the room. Now, look, the the current lockdowns are in place because they're intended to spread or to uh, prevent the spread of COVID-19. They're also restricting hundreds of millions of Americans' ability to move about, to engage in commerce, to connect with others. They're affecting our ability to make a living, to worship, even to care for one another. And the most disturbing aspect that I'm seeing is the forcefulness with which various states and locales are enforcing and imposing these respective policies to protect public health. It's not the same all the way across the board, But some of them are taking it very, very seriously. And this is becoming a cause for concern. When you have government determining which businesses and which jobs are essential and which are not, that's kind of a sketchy area to be in. And when government is telling citizens, well, these reasons are legitimate for leaving your homes and these are not, that too is sketchy. In fact, I'm going to play a clip for you a little bit later uh, from uh, Michigan's governor. Wait until you hear the things that she is claiming the power to regulate. See, in many locales, these aren't just guidelines. They're not just suggestions. They're mandates that are backed with the threat of force. And when you have people being ticketed or fined $500 to $1,000 for simply sitting in their car watching the sunset or listening to a church service broadcast over their car radio, you have to wonder, is this really about protecting the public or is this about something else? It should be clear, the line between public health and authoritarian demands is getting blurry. And that leaves us, you and me, with a decision. What do we do? How do we ensure that the people who are in authority, the people to whom we have delegated authority, respect the limits of the power that has been delegated to them and continue to operate in the interest of the public? And how do we respond to their dictates that say, you will obey or else? See, we all have a decision to make here, and I'm not going to pretend it's an easy one. It's a slam dunk. Everybody knows what to do. Clearly, we don't. 
because I hear people asking and talking about it all the time. What do we do? What can I do? I know something's wrong. I feel that this is taking us in a very dark direction, but I'm not sure what to do about it. And I understand it's it's not because, well, I'm afraid somebody might criticize me or somebody might think badly. Some people may worry about that, but the people who I'm hearing express these concerns are more concerned with what can I do that's productive and that doesn't detract from these real efforts to try to prevent the spread of a a deadly virus, but at the same time make it clear that the, the overreach is just that. It's overreach, and it has to be answered with someone putting their foot down, standing up and saying, look, you can't do this. No. So we have a choice. Do you go along with it and give it your full support? Because, you know, maybe it gives you a, a contact high from, you know, the, the advantage of, uh, well, I'm lined up with authority. Do you quietly go along with it, even if you think it's wrong, because you're worried somebody might single you out for attention? Do you just make yourself inconspicuous and wait for, you know, it to be safe to oppose it? Or do you clearly and unequivocally make your opposition known, even if that entails risk? Now, I hope you understand this isn't a call for rebellion. This is the recognition that we have to make our voices heard. We have to stand our ground in defense of essential liberties. I know most of us have been pretty comfortable because that's something we haven't had to do within our lifetimes. What a blessing to have lived in a time where that largely wasn't necessary. But guess what? We've lived long enough. We now find ourselves in interesting times. We find ourselves where those essential liberties are being threatened. And the only way that they will be preserved is for people to find the courage to stand up and be heard. And there are many different ways that this can be done, but it has to happen sooner than later. Now, it could start with calling your elected representatives. It could start with corresponding with your mayor, your governor. And I know people who are doing this. And I don't see this as a useful ge- or a useless gesture. But first, you've got to be willing. You've got to know in your heart that it is the right thing to stand up. And I want to remind you, too, that, look, there are risks here. There are risks. If people get together, this, this rally coming up in Salt Lake on Saturday, there is risk involved. But you do remember that authentic liberty always has required the acceptance of informed risk and personal responsibility. And what that means is, you know, you don't have to be reckless, but if you want to be a free people, you have to be a courageous people. When the signers of the Declaration of Independence put their names on the dotted line, so to speak, they pledged their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor. And this wasn't just, you know, unless, of course, it's risky, They put their names on that paper because they meant it. It took courage, but there was great risk and there was absolutely no guarantee that they would come out on the winning side. And in their case, it didn't mean they're going to get a $400 ticket. In their case, being on the losing side meant they would swing from a rope. We're not quite at that stage. So, you know, take heart. But above all, if this is something that speaks to you, if you if you know in your heart, I need to make my voice heard, I need to assert 
that there is right and there is wrong, and I want to stand on the side of right, then remember, small acts of courage are just as contagious as any virus. And when these acts are based in principle, you can help other people see the truth of what's at stake, and you can rally them to the defense of their rights, like the right to worship freely, the right to speak out and communicate freely, the right to assemble peaceably, the right to petition your government. I know it may not be a popular thing, but I think the time has come for all of us to make that decision. Will we stand with all who would peaceably claim, use, and defend these rights? I can only answer for myself, but I hope it's something you'll give some serious thought to. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, once again, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Glad you could join me today. We are talking about some pretty heavy stuff. I promised you at the beginning of this episode that uh, we were going to uh, be moving you out of the comfort zone. Uh, if you're if you're feeling a bit uncomfortable, well, don't take offense, but that's exactly where I would like you to be. At least, you know, uh, where, where you're giving some serious thought to things that you may not have considered before. In the last segment, I was talking a little bit about risk. And certainly there is risk, even in going to the store for essential items or going to the doctor in, in the midst of a co- uh, coronavirus pandemic, there is real risk that's taken place. And there's risk that continues to exist. But we've got to keep that risk in perspective. And John Miltimore writing for intellectualtakeout.org has a remarkable article. Now, it's, it's kind of heavy on some numbers, but I think it's worth looking at. I'll have a link to it in the show notes and would encourage you, take a look at what they're saying here and then weigh those risks, okay? This is not me making up your mind for you. We're telling you, you have to think this way, but just understand, with more information, you can make a better informed decision about what risks you are willing to assume and which you aren't. And if you're simply taking all of your uh, risk assessment from uh, the talking points at either the national or state level, you know, and, and, and from uh, Dr. Fauci and, and whatever, I, I'm going to suggest maybe you're getting some, some pretty slanted information. Case in point, a lot of people were shocked yesterday to hear, well, the number of deaths in New York has gone up uh, over 10,000 due to coronavirus. And boy, that is a big number. That's shocking. 10,000 people. My goodness, that's a that's a small city somewhere. And yet, lost in the information exchange there is the, the, the truth of the matter, which is, yeah, there have been a lot of people who have died from coronavirus in the New York area, but 3,700 plus of those deaths that are being counted as coronavirus deaths are deaths that were lumped in without actually having been proven to have been coronavirus deaths, meaning they didn't test those individuals who died for coronavirus. They just, well, you know, we, we're going to go ahead and, and assign those as coronavirus deaths. What, could, what advantage could that possibly bring to people who are trying to stay abreast of, of reality and, and to, to make an informed decision? You know, I mean, I'm sorry to sound conspiratorial, but that, that sounds like the numbers are being cooked or they're being uh, manipulated, massaged, if you will, to, to make things sound worse than they may actually be. Who benefits from that? Well, I'll leave that answer up to you. 
But if it's not the people telling you what to do and where to go and how to stand and how many times to wash your hands a day, I, you know, I can't think of who else it would be. John Miltimore's article, there is a new study from Yale, German COVID death risk equivalent to driving nine miles per day. Now, he says more than 120,000 people have died worldwide during the COVID-19 pandemic as of April 14th. This is according to official statistics. Nearly two million people have been infected worldwide. But a new white paper published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, Yale University and BMJ suggests the fatality risk of COVID-19 may not be as high as previously believed. Analyzing data from Belgium, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland, as well as New York City, Louisiana, Michigan, and Washington State, researchers concluded that COVID-19 deaths are remarkably uncommon for individuals under the age of 65 who do not have pre-existing health conditions. In pandemic hotbeds such as the Netherlands, Italy, and New York City, people in this category accounted for just 0.3%, 0.7%, and 1.8% of all COVID-19 deaths, according to researchers. Now, scholars John P.A. Ioannidis, Catherine Axfors, and Despina G. Contopoulos Ioannidis said that the COVID-19 death risk in people under 65 years old during the period of fatalities from the epidemic was equivalent to the death risk from driving between 9 miles per day in Germany or 415 miles per day in New York City. Now, in a previous article written for STAT, John Ioannidis, a professor of epidemiology at Stanford University, raised the possibility that the novel coronavirus disease could prove to be a -a once-in-a-century evidence fiasco. And he actually expressed skepticism of efforts to flatten the curve by mandating school and business closures. One of the bottom lines that we don't know is that we don't know how long social distancing measures and lockdowns can be maintained without major consequences to the economy, society and mental health. That's according again to Dr. Ioannidis. The authors of the white paper published on April 8th conclude that data suggests policymakers should explore a pandemic strategy, quote, focusing specifically on protecting high risk elderly individuals, end quote. Now, John Miltimore points out those findings would seem to run counter to widely cited estimates from the Imperial College in London, as well as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. On March 29th, Anthony Fauci, an epidemiologist and leader of the Trump administration's coronavirus task force, estimated the U.S. death toll from the novel coronavirus would be 100,000 to 200,000. Now, those estimates, while daunting, were far below the estimates of Neil Ferguson, a British epidemiologist and professor of professor of mathematical biology at the Imperial College in London. He published a paper saying 2.2 million Americans and more than 500,000 in the UK would likely die. Well, according to a March 20th New York Times report, Ferguson said the best case scenario for the U.S. was about 1.1 million deaths. Now, maybe you remember Ferguson later clarified his estimates were predicated on the absence of social distancing measures. In the U.S., 95 percent of Americans have been ordered to stay at home because of the COVID-19 pandemic, 
A total of 42 states have issued orders that require their citizens to shelter in homes and leave only for essential activities like getting food or medical supplies or services. As a result of stay-at-home orders and business closures, a record 17 million Americans have filed for unemployment just in the last three weeks. And there's currently a great debate raging as to whether the federal government will change its social distancing guidelines to prod the U.S. economy back to work on May 1st. Popular Fox News host Laura Ingram recently tweeted, at some point, the president is going to have to look at doctors Fauci and Burks and say, we're opening on May 1st. Give me your best guidance on protocols, but we cannot deny our people their basic freedoms any longer. And John Miltimore sums up, look, kickstarting the economy would come with risks, of course, but everything in life does, even driving nine miles. And I think that's the thing we have to keep in mind is there is nothing that you and I can do that does not entail some degree of risk. The key is to make sure that you are acting upon informed risk, knowing what the likely consequences are going to be, how you can mitigate that risk if possible, and then deciding for yourself whether or not to move forward. Now, collectivists really like to seize on the idea, yeah, but just one person, one person who has this virus could go out there and spoil everybody's day. And yet, for some reason, they can't seem to comprehend that, uh, look, it's already happening. If you if you're out in public, you're already assuming that the, the, there's there's going to be some kind of contact and some kind of risk from being out there in public. You may touch a surface that somebody infected had touched. You don't know. There are no guarantees. In other words, I guess I, the, the, here's the here's the short version of it. You have no guarantee that you will not contract coronavirus or the common cold or flu or something else. Herpes. <laughs> you don't have a guarantee. Now, there are ways that you can reduce your risk. And frankly, if you are that afraid, I would suggest maybe you need, you need to hunker down at home and keep yourself isolated. But what you don't need to do is clamor for government to lean on everybody else. As disturbing as the thought of thousands of people dying, you know, because of this virus or, you know, their lives ending prematurely because they got sick and other complications, you know, with the coronavirus, you know, took their life. That's that's sad. It's tragic for anybody who has lost someone under those circumstances. But it's still not as disturbing to me as a whole society of people or for that matter, worldwide whole societies of people surrendering their freedoms without so much as a protest based on someone in authority telling him, you have to do this. And then escalating that you have to do this or else we will hurt you. Because that's what's happening. And as you've heard me say before, the the virus will run its course. It will pass at some point. The measures that are being instituted, though, that's the big question. Will they go away? Will someone dial back, you know, the the level of control that these authorities are assuming? Or will they just intensify? Will Will they be invoked every time someone wants to clamp down and get a little bit more control? Because human nature says that's a totally legitimate concern. We'll be back after this.
Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Again, we'll be uh, opening up the phone lines coming up in the next hour. By the way, uh, Cliff Maloney will be joining me from Young Americans for Liberty. And I really hope you'll stick around to hear what he has to say. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, but uh, it's 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 the young folks who are going to be doing much of the heavy lifting in the days ahead. And this is particularly true as it comes to uh, to preserving and perpetuating what liberty remains. Now, knock on wood, it's going to be a majority of our liberties, but uh, we're going to talk with him about some of the things that are going on with YAL. And again, I hope you'll join us for that in the next hour. I want to take a few minutes here and I want you to hear a commentary from uh, this is Tucker Carlson, along with Judge Napolitano, uh, talking about the new tyranny from state governors. And the point here is that right now it's, you know, we've looked at the federal government and seen a lot of overreach over the years. But compared to what state governors are doing in response to the coronavirus fears, whew, I'd say the, the feds are actually uh, they're, they're taking a more hands off approach. Wait till you hear what is going on. And particularly, I want you to pay attention to what's happening in the state of Michigan and ask yourself, is it good? Is it healthy for a governor to exercise or to claim the prerogative to exercise this much control over a person's life and well-being. Listen up. Here's, here is uh, Tucker Carlson introducing the segment. On March 23rd, Gretchen Whitmer, who's the governor of Michigan, announced it was going to be necessary to lock down her state. And she explained why she was doing it. Here's what she said. Without additional aggressive measures, soon our hospitals will be overwhelmed. And we don't all, we currently don't even have enough beds, masks, gowns, and ventilators. Two weeks later, what's happened? Well, Michigan's healthcare system has not collapsed. Even in Detroit, which as you likely know, has seen one of the worst coronavirus outbreaks anywhere in the nation. Many hospitals in Michigan, as of tonight, are now discharging more coronavirus patients than they're admitting. In fact, an emergency hospital under construction outside Detroit has slashed its bed count from 1,000 to just 250. Why? The expected number of patients failed to arrive. Now, that's all great news that you would think Governor Whitmer, who's supposed to be looking out for the interests of her own people, would be celebrating on television. She's doing just the opposite. Last week, Whitmer banned all gatherings anywhere for any reason of any size, including in people's private homes, as if she's allowed to do that. If Michigan residents own more than one home, Whitmer has banned them from traveling between them. And outside Detroit, it's very common, especially for working class people, to have a cabin up north. You're not allowed to go there. And then she kept going. Not only did Governor Whitmer close most stores in the state, she banned the few that remained open from selling items that she deemed unnecessary. Big box stores will also have to close areas of the store that are dedicated to things like carpet or flooring, furniture, garden centers, plant nurseries, or paint. If you're not buying food or medicine or other essential items, you should not be going to the store. We're joined now by Judge Andrew Napolitano, and happy to be. Hey, Judge, thanks for joining us. So you've spent the last, well, the 20 years I've known you, talking about civil liberties and how central they are to the American experiment. They're enshrined in our documents, of course. I haven't heard any talk about them recently. Are they still relevant? You know, uh, one of our colleagues sent me a cartoon of the framers signing the Constitution. And in this cartoon, Washington turns to Madison and says, let me get this straight. None of this counts if people get sick, right? 
you know, sort of a humorous way of mocking what's happening today, your um, analysis of Governor Whitmer could apply to nearly all the remaining 49 governors who assume that they have the power to crush individual liberties, violate the Constitution, and write laws. Well, they don't. Laws in this country are written by legislative branches after public hearings and debates, so there's a transparency. So we would know why she doesn't want you to buy garden hoses. There'd have to be a rational basis articulated for it. But when the executive branch takes upon itself the role of not just enforcing the law, but of making up new ones, and when in the process it crushes basic fundamental liberties, like the right to travel, and the right to worship, never mind on Easter Sunday, but on any time you want to worship, we are witnessing the slow death, the death in slow motion of civil liberties, because these governors, these petty tyrants, will use this power again and again until some courageous federal court or an outraged public stops them. I'm so thankful that you pointed out it's it's not just Governor Whitmer. I mean, it's Governor Hogan in Maryland. It's Governor Klanrobes in Virginia. It's virtually all of them. Very quickly, do you think there's a mechanism for pulling them back a little bit now? Hopefully, it'll be outrage stirred up by uh, the type of reporting that you and some of our colleagues have uh, begun to be doing. And even some of our colleagues on the left uh, have been doing some of this reporting. But basic human liberty are, liberties are guaranteed in the Constitution. They can't even be taken away by the vote of a legislature, much less the, the command of a governor or, or, a, or a mayor. These executive orders look like orders and sound like orders. They're just guidelines. They don't have the force of law. There cannot be a criminal sanction for the failure to comply with them, because they are at their, at their root just the whim of those in power uh, intended to enhance their power. They are not valid expressions of constitutional doctrine. Thank you for reminding us of that. Judge Napolitano, great to see you tonight. Thank you. Wow. That that is so clearly stated. And and I, you know, I would encourage you go back and, and watch that clip. It'll be in the show notes. I'll put it in there with the podcast notes. We need to be reminded of that just because someone, you know, in a, in a three piece suit or even in a uniform says this is how it has to be does not necessarily mean that it has the force of law when it comes to your essential liberties. And, and here's the question that I know some people are, are asking themselves and, and, and I find myself asking this question, too. OK, how strongly do I believe that I need to stand up and assert these rights? And I actually had a friend ask me, you know, the other day, are you willing to be arrested for it? Now, that's a tough that is a tough hurdle for for someone to overcome. Would you be willing to stand up? Would you be willing to be arrested? And for those who think, well, now when you start talking about getting arrested. That's, you know, now you've clearly crossed a line. Really? Rosa Parks. She was arrested. How many times was Martin Luther King Jr. arrested? Now, you may think, well, you know, you're confusing civil rights with civil liberties. Well, the same principle is at stake here. If government is actively denying you your rights, Are you just expected to sit there and take it until whoever's in power, you know, comes to their senses and changes their mind? Or is disobedience occasionally the way to do it? Peaceful, principled disobedience, sitting, you know, in the the front of the bus, sitting at the lunch counter where you're not supposed to sit. 
leaving your home when you're not supposed to, buying a garden hose when you're not supposed to. Hopefully you can see the point. Words on paper don't necessarily correspond with right and wrong. They're more about legal and illegal, and we should never forget that distinction. So what do you think is the most important lesson that we can learn from COVID-19? Thomas L. Knapp has a really solid take here. He says, you know, um, city governments from Miami to Los Angeles gave themselves whiplash when uh, the the orders went out about uh, wearing masks when they were officially discouraged and then suddenly went to mandatory almost overnight. Philadelphia's bus system adopted the policy so enthusiastically. I don't know if you've seen the video of cops violently dragging non-masked riders off of buses. And there are some lessons you can learn from this. The way that the officials have overreacted to the uh, to the coronavirus situation. Thomas Knapp says the parable of mask idiocy's lessons extend like those of most parables far beyond the specifics of the story itself. But he says if general lessons can be drawn from our experience of COVID-19 so far, here are three of them. First, never expect government to be prepared to respond to a pandemic. Second, never expect government's ad hoc responses to a pandemic to be the correct responses. Third, Never expect government to admit to its errors. So it was telling you one thing back in February, telling you something totally different now. You know, it's it's and and, and of course, those in power want to take the uh, the credit for saving you from the apocalypse. He says at this very moment, herds of government officials and public health bureaucrats are stampeding away from their initial predictions of hundreds of thousands, even millions of American deaths from COVID-19. Latest guesstimate, substantially under 100,000. Now, they know you're not going to forget those early predictions, so their task is to con you into believing that those lower numbers are the function of you having obeyed whatever they told you to do. But he says don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. As with so many other jobs, the state is neither competent nor trustworthy when it comes to protecting us from contagion. Let us never forget that. That is the single most important lesson we can learn so far from COVID-19. This is Loving Liberty. Stay with us. Hour two is just around the corner. 